0: Bitcoin, crypto, bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an Old Mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider.
1: You're listening to a
0: podcast from Civil Two and Cape Talk. The money show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day, get great financial advice, do great things. Well, what a horrible day it's been on markets. Uh JC taking a big pounding on the day. When McCurry from Ashburton Investments joins us in a couple of minutes time as we reflect on the day that was huge sell off happening across industrial shares and across banking shares. And it's a lot of it is to do with uncertainty, political uncertainty in Europe believe it or not. Remember when Greece was going through its trials and tribulations and the great uncertainty there? Well Italy is essentially doing the same sort of thing and it's going to lead to weeks of speculation as to the breakup of the Eurozone and there will be the smug Brexiteers in the United Kingdom will say you see we told you so, that's why we're leaving and then it'll all calm down, and it'll all be a bad dream. That's at least the way the script looks at the moment. But today we saw a big sell off also in Naspar, and when Naspar falls 4% the market is going to take a beating. Naspars down 4 to 3,088 Rand. But yeah, the financial sector got bludgeoned. The industrial sector was more than 2% down. Only gold shares made money on the day, and that's not because the gold price did anything. It was all largely due to the currency. Coming up on The Money Show this evening in a moment, Leon Lawrence, the chief executive at what will soon be called again PEPCOR. Steinoff Africa Retailers, has got itself entangled in the mess to do with Steinoff and the fraud and the listing and the share incentives and, and, and. We'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, Basani Maluleke, chief executive at African Bank. They're coming right, but they're still not nearly profitable enough to be spun off and to be relisted on the JSE. And then the middle class, there was this great story in the early 2000s about how the South African middle class was expanding and how everybody was going to be driving Mercedes-Benz. And some people did and lived in nice houses. But actually, the story of the middle class and the burgeoning middle class turns out to be something of a myth. It's much smaller than you were led to believe a couple of years ago. Academics at UCT have been uh, doing a study into that. And he writes with Heroes and Zeros. And then the science of the personal brand. Um, So many of you are going into business on your own, either because you've been forced to by circumstance in the corporate world, or you're choosing to break away and start your own thing. You need legal advice. You need guidance. And there's a guy called Aiton Stern. He's a directed legalese. They build themselves as a law firm that's not a law firm. It's always, you've always got to. Like it's an accountant who's not a CA, or a CA who's not really an accountant. We've got to watch these guys. We'll talk about that at half past seven this evening.
1: The Money Show on cake Talk, your
0: number one news and talk station. Fast fact on this Tuesday evening, who is the chair of the New Development Bank? The New Development Bank, at its third annual general meeting, has elected a chairman. Who is that person? 31702 and 31567. Now, there's an old saying, give a a dog a bad name and hang him. It's an old English proverb. And it means that if a person's reputation has been besmirched, they're going to suffer difficulty and hardship. So what do you do when you've got a bad name? You change it that's what Steinoff Africa Retail is looking to do. Leon Lawrence is the chief executive at Steinoff Africa Retail. You're trying to get rid of the, the stain of Steinoff from Steinoff Africa Retail and go back to the good old-fashioned Pepcor. Well, let's put it like this. We want to be more independent. And uh, and
2: going back to Pepcor, is not such a long time ago we were still Pepcor. And the management that's in the business at the moment are all Pepcor leaders or ex-Pepcor leaders. And, you know, with the legacy that we've built up over many years, I think it's the right thing to do to gain that independence but also to give symbolically to tell our uh, our 46000 employees
0: that, uh, that there's, a, there's a future in the past, almost. There's a future in the past. Now, mm-hmm. um, the idea of converting to Steinoff Africa Retail was this dream of pulling together all of the uh, the retail assets that kind of were connected to Christo Visa and to Marcus Joerster, and they were going to pull this all together, and it was a massively mm. complex set of deals in which uh, we know Christo Visa poured 59 billion rand into the yeah. transaction because that's what he's suing Steinoff for. Um, and part of that was to put all of the retail, so Ackermans and Pep, um and a bunch of others except shopright because whitey Basson went near donkey because that's what he would have said
2: Yes, you know, I can't speak for ShopRite, but, I mean, they were never in the deal. There would have been a deal or there was a planned deal after the, uh, after the listing that would have happened, um, but then Steinhoff happened.
0: Steinhoff happened. Yeah. Um, when we look at Steinhoff happening, um, the fraud yeah. that's there, and it's well accepted that there has been a very significant fraud, and they've come out and said that there will be financial results that will come out at the end of June. I think it is the 30th of June or thereabouts. How has it directly affected Steinhoff Africa Retail?
2: Well, firstly, I think the important thing is that we had audited financial results that were reported uh, on the 4th of December of last year, just before. Uh, So we're quite comfortable with that. It was rechecked afterwards. So uh, uh, the biggest effect for us were on the people of the business. And then secondly, as I said, to try and create some sort of distance or independence to say that we're not really involved in it. The best thing that could have happened to us is obviously the fact that we listed and we could separate ourselves and make ourselves independent. And That's been the sort of route that we've been we've been walking ever since.
0: Steinhoff, though, does own 71% of Steinhoff Africa retail. You can't be independent. We're independent as far as decision-making is concerned. Our board is
2: independent. Uh, we do have Steinhoff uh, representatives on the board, but uh, we've got a well-balanced board. And I think that the, that the decisions that we take are always in the interest of star.
0: You'll forgive me if there's a bit of a contradiction in your independence and then the desire to be incentivized through juicy Steinhoff shares listed on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange because the management team, this independent management team, as you put it, said, oh, no, we'll, have, we'll, have, we'll swap our Pepco and our Ackermans and our, all of our share options. We'll take Steinhoff options. Thank you very much.
2: Yeah, that's not completely accurate, Bruce. I mean, uh, the, the scheme that we're talking about here and the one that's been reported is a scheme that started in twenty. 20- 11. That was a purely PEPCOR scheme. Uh, it was designed at the time for, uh, to create an, op- create an opportunity in a private environment for the top leaders in the business to, to take up shareholding. Um, and that's how it worked. And, and until 2015, I mean, and, and, and with very good results, it was converted into Steinoff shares. And, and that's how it all – and then it obviously, uh, st- you know, the Steinhoff share price collapsed. But it
0: was a PEPCOR scheme for PEPCOR people at the time. With it, with, but it's the same as Nedbank what was it, eighteen years ago, incentivizing Ned bank directors on the die data share price which was listed in London and went to a hundred bucks. It feels the same as that. Was it different?
2: No, it was different. I think it, I think well in this case, I, I think the, the history of the company and how it was built and how the shelding was built and how this investment scheme, the the reasons why it was created was for, for management to put skin in the game. Uh for Pepcor obviously uh, as it happened with the purchase of of Pepcor, when Steinhoff bought it i mean uh, that that got converted there wasn't a choice in that so the Pepcor people had to convert
0: why did they have to convert i thought they were because it was, was in- part
2: of the deal it, There but, wasn't there wasn't a choice from a, from a, from the shareholder of the, of the scheme there wasn't a choice
0: okay but i mean but this then puts pay to the idea of independence so you're not independent you've been connected to Steinhoff at the hip all all the way along i th- i think i think
2: we were but uh, to a lesser extent now, since we listed, remember, this all happened before the listing. And uh, since we listed, we're, as far as I'm concerned, independent and we take independent decisions.
0: How, why then, do you want Stein of Africa retail shareholders to bail out the management of Stein of Africa retail and say, what are the costs? It's something like 180 million rand a year plus a legacy amount of 440 million rand for incentives. A lot of people are very cross about this.
2: I'm not sure where you get the 180 million rand a year. But on the 440, uh, that is the guarantee. When when the scheme was formed, the investment scheme was formed in 2011, Uh, it was funded by a bank, partly by a bank and by Pepcor. And Pepcor then uh, stood there or or was uh, agreed to guarantee the, the debt of the bank. And unfortunately, that's where it ended up today. So the part that's being, as you call it, bailed out, That's the part where Pepcor stood guarantee, and that guarantee was already agreed in 2011.
0: But why must your shareholders pay for it? I mean, these are guarantees to keep management incentivized. That was
2: the agreement. I mean, the same, you can say, why would the employees pay for it if if that wasn't the
0: agreement Mm. initially? Um, Okay, so this is an agreement which shareholders have voted on in the past and agreed to. Nobody anticipated that Steinhoff was going to go bad. Nobody anticipated that there would be a situation where the management of Steinhoff Africa Retail would then be under water. Um, why must this management team be bailed out? You you took a risk, and that's the nature of share incentives, and DiData is another great example of how people got themselves caught short and couldn't afford to leave the company because um, they had to buy back their shares if yeah, they wanted to, yes. and the share price was higher than the than the exercise price. Why must, why must management be bailed out? Uh, management, to a large
2: extent, is not being bailed out. You must remember, Bruce, that b- people built up wealth in the scheme over a long period of mm. time in PIPCOR. The value of the share of the, share of the investment uh, scheme at, at, at one stage was more than seven times the value of the debt. What happened afterwards, unfortunately, uh, uh, due to the Steinoff share price, the people that were on that scheme lost a lot of money. Now, when Steinoff bought Pepcor, the value in that scheme was over two and a half billion Rand. That's all wiped. So, so no, those mm. those people lost a lot of money. They well,
0: can, can can you not see though how people sitting on the outside of what looks like a very comfortable and cozy arrangement might feel hard done by by this? I think it's a different
2: situation, Bruce. To be honest, I think uh, the the fact that the, the, that the people in the scheme invested their own money and lost in the process, they're not necessarily bailed out. Again, I want to stress mm. the fact that there was a guarantee signed by PEPCOR in twenty eleven. They have to. We have to, as Pepcor, unfortunately, we have to stick stick with that guarantee and uh, by, uh, by right, you know. And uh, the employees in the process lost a lot of money. And uh, and yes, I think it's important to, to to remember that.
0: Is is the plan here though to retain as many employees and management as possible because some very of talented course. and capable people. Um, and so this is an incentive to keep them in the business.
2: No, that was not the reason why this 440 was paid. The reason why the 440 was paid, because it was guaranteed by Pepcor Mm -hmm. contractually at the time. What I have to say, and and it's a good point you touch, because we have great people in the business. And during all the disruption that we've gone through in the last six months, those people have come to the fore, and they've actually taken the business um, despite all that. They've actually grown the business, and, uh, and I'm very proud of the guys that, that, that have done that. So we've got great people. We haven't lost one person, by the way, through all of this, and, and that, I think, is testimony to the culture that used to exist in the old PEPCOR group.
0: Uh, and if, this deal does, if shareholders don't agree to this deal, or unless they have already, um, mm-hmm. do they have a choice? Do shareholders have a vote on this? No. They don't have a vote. So no. this is a done deal. Yes um, And this way You don't lose Any senior staff members And everybody continues As if nothing Has ever gone wrong No Once again This was not The reason for the
2: payment Of, of the 440 The reason was Because there was a guaranteed And that's contractually so
0: And the 18 billion Rand that you raised What was it Last week Two, two yes. weeks ago That 18 billion Rand What is the purpose Of that 18 billion Rand what is, How is it going To be utilized Well, The, the main
2: purpose Of the 18 billion the, We had 16 billion Rand's worth Of, of uh, debt With Steinoff And mm-hmm. um, uh, com- uh, together with that, there were guarantees cross guarantees that we were, could be liable for if something happened to Steinhoff. moving the uh, the debt over to the banks the, refin- the banks that refinanced us we don 't have any connection with Steinhoff as far as that debt is concerned, and in the process, the cross guarantees that we were standing in for uh, were released so, so, so financially that mm-hmm. made us to a great deal
0: made us independent financially so no matter what happens to Steinhoff. So, if Steinhoff goes bankrupt, completely yes, bankrupt, yes. you are absolved of any connection to that courtesy of that uh, that money that you raised last week, because that is cleansed, that has expunged the debt, and the banks that have lent you this money in order to expunge that debt have faith in the future of Stanof Africa Retail. Correct. Leon Lawrence, thank you, Chief Executive at Stanof Africa Retail, soon to be called Pepco. When does that happen? Well, it happens. Uh, well, it happens once we've uh, we still have uh, have to.
2: It's been approved by our board. We're going through a process now of getting it signed off by the uh, by our share, uh, shareholders. And then and offer, not, a mo- and not a moment too soon. And, and then we'll do it not a moment too soon. Where is Marcus Joester? I have no idea. When last did you talk to Marcus Joester? <laughs> Very long time ago.
0: Now, did you talk to him? Have you spoken to him since uh, the SMS was sent out? Because Christophe says he hasn't spoken to Marcus Joester since the SMS was sent out, saying terribly sorry, everybody. Uh, I've summarized. I screwed you all over. and It's entirely my fault. Mine is the same as Christophe Leon Lawrence, Chief Executive at Steinhoff Africa Retail. The Money Show. The Markets. The fast fact, just remind you who is the chair of the new development bank? You might have known it as the BRICS Bank, 31702 31567. Don't answer that, Where McCurry. can see that look in your face that says that you know the answer, but you may not answer it, or well, certainly not yet. Um, what do you make of Steinhoff Africa Retail? And uh, lots of people's SMSs and uh, tweets, and I'm getting a couple of emails <laughs> in this evening as well saying, no, 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 this just doesn't smell or feel
1: right. Look, Bruce, I think there's going to be a massive amount of litigation and still coming out between, obviously, Steinhoff itself and Starr. And, you know, they got this special purpose vehicle that they also didn't know about until they entered into these loan repayment obligations. Look, it's going to take years and years and years for all of this to come out.
0: No, it's a shambles. um, um sign of Africa retail, worth a punt? <laughs> um, I ask this quite seriously. Well, look, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it, it's
1: renaming to Pepco because yeah. its majority is Pepco, and that was a very good business, still is a very good business.
0: Um, so would you, would you
1: look at shares at 16 Rand in sign of Africa retail? A lot
0: of commentary I've been seeing today saying, hold on a second, still far too expensive, still far too much risk associated, even though they are seeking desperately to divorce themselves of each other.
1: Yeah, well, look, they were always going to. I mean, the name change was inevitable coming through because you obviously want to distance yourself as far from the Steinhoff name as possible. Yes, I think it's worthwhile looking at. I mean, as I said, Pepco is a very, very good business, and it's very well represented in, in, in Africa, not just South Africa.
0: Um, and of course, there is in Eastern Europe, there's Pep and Co., and there's in the United Kingdom, there's a Pep yes. business as well. Um, so it's got a, a very, very strong footprint. African Bank, um, coming yes. right very, very nicely. Still not profitable enough, but in much better shape.
1: Certainly, they, they, I mean, whenever a board of directors start out saying in their commentary that we are very pleased to present these results to you, you know the results are good in, in, in sort of their estimation. And yes, it it wasn't a bad result, but obviously, There's still a long, long way to go on that one.
0: What are the big issues that they're still faced, do you think?
1: Well, look, I suppose it's the the name. It's a highly competitive market that uh, in Capitex India, they lost a lot of business, obviously, right through all of the trials and tribulations that we well know. And they've got to regain that customer base, I suppose. But, I mean, I suppose the biggest single problem is it's highly competitive.
0: Yeah, it is most certainly. And it's going to get increasingly competitive as well. What's happening with Marion Roberts and Avenge and gagging orders and offers and skinner and scandal? It's It's too gorgeous.
1: It's all – I mean, it's all a very complicated thing. Marion Roberts and Avenge were going to merge because Avenge has got serious debt that they've got to try – and retire, and they said if that merger didn't happen, then they were going to do a rights issue, and of course at this price, it's going to have to be a heavily discounted rights issue. It's it's trading at 35 cents from... Yes, from 70-odd rand, (laughs) something like that, I think in 2008, something like that, and at one stage, they had a good few hundred million cash on the balance sheet. In fact, at one stage, their market cap was represented by 30 or 40% cash on the balance sheet, so things can change rapidly. But anyway, Murray and Roberts is now subject to the ATON takeover. And ATON's got, what is it, 39% of the shares last time I heard? Something like that. So will the Murray and Roberts AVENGE merger go through? If not, AVENGE is going to do a rights issue because they have no alternative.
0: And Murray and Roberts basically been told to shut up by ATON because the chief executive has not been all that supportive of ATON's bid.
1: Correct, yes. What an interesting now story. Now, look, it's, it's mm. a very complex story, this whole <laughs> one. And it's a very long and quite mm. difficult uh, announcement by them today to understand. Mm,
0: well, certainly. And then explain Italy to me, please, this is Greece Mark II. Uh, three or four years ago, uh, Greece was going through its debt crisis. The Italians have yep. just had yet another election. It's going to last them until about September. But they seem on a hiding to nothing.
1: Look, they've always had this massive debt, and it's been there since the Greek crisis and since before then. And now it's coming to a head today. And we've seen Spanish bonds and Italian bonds, just the the yield just skyrocket, literally almost overnight. And unfortunately, fortunately, tied in with a little bit of emerging market crises, it's not a good day for us on our bond market. The rand actually behaved quite well, but certainly the the all share index. Coupled with what's happening overseas, did not look good today at all.
0: Yeah, the JSE closing below fifty six thousand on the all share index, nine hundred and twenty one points down, nearly two percent lower. Yes, industrials and banking and and, and well, insurance shares got pulverised. Was everyone?
1: Yeah, absolutely pulverised. Everyone. And this is very typical, as we've discussed before, about this late cycle phenomenon, where you have rising interest rates, both long and short term. It's never good news for the share market. It isn't.
0: I tell you what, um, quick question for you: who is the new chair of the New Development Bank?
1: No, I'm not going to answer. The the listeners must answer.
0: Okay, and everyone's getting it right. They're getting it right. And Tlantlanene Nene, um, is the new chairman. And you know what? I'm I'm really cross about this because Jacob Zuma told us that he planned this. Yeah,
1: in 20- and nobody believed six, him. In 2015 December the 22nd wasn't it? It was the 12th. No, he uh, told uh, us. He uh, told us after after he fired him what he was going to do with.
0: So him. it was 9:12 on the 9th of December 2015. He fired in Tlan Tlan Nene. Then three days mm. later came out with a statement saying, "But I hey, hold on a second. This guy's going to the new development bank. He's going to the BRICS bank, and nobody mm. believed." Him. Nobody has got has given the president, former president, credit for this great appointment because the he announced this long- three years ago.
1: You know, he's had a nice garden Leaf for a long time.
0: <laughs> and he's back as finance minister as well. Thank you for playing along, with mm-hmm. McCurry. Where Jacob Zuma said he'd remove uh, Ntlantla Nen as finance minister so that could so that join the new development bank, nobody believed you, believed him. And shame on you for doubting him. Really shame on you. It's taken two and a half years to come to fruition. Fair enough. And Ntlantla Nen has had several jobs since then, including farming and lay preaching and working at bear, and now back as the finance minister once again. But you guys had very little faith in our former president, uh, Jacob Zuma, and you should... To be ashamed of yourself. Uh, the bank, by the way, has made money available to each of the New Development Bank's members, including $200 million. This is the first tranche of money, I think, to come out of the New Development Bank for the Durban Container Terminal, uh, the, the, the reconstruction uh, project at the Durban Container Terminal. $200 million coming from the New Development Bank, whose chairman, finally, after two and a half years of planning and strategy and thinking and clearly lots of deep insight, um, is not money show. Yeah, the Rand uh, taking quite a lot of strain on the day, the Italian crisis hitting the euro, and of course we we do perform in line with the euro very often. So yeah, we're taking quite a lot of pressure on the currency, and that uh, weighed heavily on the market today. In a couple of minutes' time, we'll talk to the chief executive at African Bank, um, and also to the guy who's going to tell you that the middle class isn't as big as you once thought. On the next money show, our shapeshifter, the presidential investor emissary, the Afro Pulse executive chair, the group chair of Prime Media Pumzile Langeni joins us in the studio. Also, Business Unusual with Colin Cullis, and then the South African entrepreneur selling Biltong in Norway. Seriously, there's somebody who's doing that and is making money out of it. Next time on The Money Show. Cake Talk The Money Show. Bruce is on Twitter at Bruce Business. I'm curious to know what you think of the minimum wage, 20 bucks an hour. And this was something that was in the mix about two years ago. And that was that the 20 rand uh, number was put on the table and then it was a a small amount of money. And then last year it was being fought about and it was a smaller amount of money. And now two years later, that 20 bucks an hour is worth in real terms probably 10 or 12 percent less than it was when it was first muted. So how worthwhile is this 20 rand an hour minimum wage passed by Parliament today? I'm curious on your thoughts on this one on 21 I like Jackson Mtembu's take on this he's the chief whipper there in, in Parliament and saying it's a historic minimum wage bill it establishes a minimum wage of 20 rand an hour, it'll lift over 6 million vulnerable workers from slave wages and poverty um, and then he goes on to say that the national minimum wage has been structured and packaged based on what's affordable for our economy, it's not a living wage, he emphasizes, and this is the important but it's not a replacement to existing sector determinations and unions still have to fight for a living wage that is their job and it's such an interesting and important distinction to make that this is not the the, the panacea of all uh, this isn't the panacea to to make all things right for an unequal and unjust society but it is a step in the right direction do you agree with that uh, with that contention i wonder 021446056701830702
3: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield.
0: Things seem to be going the way of the Good Bank part of African Bank, resuscitated from death's door, making an operating profit up 42% to more than 700 million rand at the end of March 2017. Basani Maluleke is chief executive of African Bank. Basani, I mean, if everybody who banked with African Bank got a minimum wage of at least 20 rand an hour, what would that do to your business? Um, Hi, Bruce.
3: It definitely would not make us more profitable actually we definitely pay our employees more than what the minimum wage is Um, and that's critical because the key obviously is we want to employ people um, who are able to deliver on the strategy of African bank and the strategy of African bank is to sell a a, a reasonably complex complex set of products um, and to service our customers in a way that drives loyalty um, and drives value so we definitely are not kind of you know, just on the edge
0: of, of paying our people well. I'm not exactly. I'm not talking about what you pay your people. I'm wondering what would happen for African Bank if more people in the economy got a minimum um, wage of at yeah. least 20 rand. Would you see a, 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 would, an appreciable change in the scale and the reach and the size of African Bank? I'm trying to understand just how significant a 20 rand and our minimum wage is in the real yeah. world.
3: You know, Bruce, it's been very interesting. We've been looking at how the profile of our customers has changed over the last... Four quarters, um, and what we've seen is that there's been an increase in the net income of the of the of the customers that we are getting onto our book, and it's well above, uh, and that and that and that number is well above um, minimum wage. And why that matters is because you'll recall having come out of curatorship, the key was to ensure that we we change our risk appetite so that we appeal, so that we so we attract, or um, can only give loans to um, a more affluent customer base than what we had typically served. As a result, it wouldn't make that much of a difference. Where it could make a difference, though, is that we're going to be launching transactional banking, as you know, towards the end of this year. And to the extent that the minimum wage does make a difference in people's lives, it does mean that we would have a much broader cross-section of society who would be um, appealing to us from a transactional perspective.
0: And you have, over the last year, become considerably more discerning about who your customer is.
3: Absolutely, um, and that's definitely coming through. We've been very pleased to see that the loans that we originate today, eighty-eight percent of them are dispersed to um, to customers that we consider to be low risk, um, and that evolution is happening throughout the book. I think about eighty percent of the book is now to uh, are now learned to to a lower risk customers. You would have seen that that's actually um, translating very well into a lower credit loss ratio. Um, which indicates that we are um, really starting to appeal to a different market.
0: So if you're appealing to lower credit risk customers, are you pricing appropriately then for that lower risk that you are taking? Because one of the criticisms of the old African bank was that African bank would charge like a wounded buffalo and then demand insurance on top.
3: You'll recall um, that because of the interest rate caps that came in um recently, we definitely priced well within um what what the what 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 the law stipulates, and we have started a process of risk based pricing for customers who are who are of a lower risk to use the bank.
0: Um, when A key sign of faith in any bank is just how much money your customers are prepared to keep on deposit with you. If they don't believe that you'll be around next week, well, they simply don't put their salaries into your bank. And what's interesting here is that 90% more deposits, So it's small at 680 million rand, but there is a greater signal from your customers that they have some faith in you.
3: And we think it's very encouraging. I mean, the ability for us to... Almost double that base in the space of six months really speaks to the changes that we're making, and to the fact that customers are seeing us as, as a more reliable prospect uh, or more stable prospect. Um, and as I said, we have 33% of new customers um, coming into the bank every month. You know, so, so there's definitely a, a good story to tell about how the bank is transforming itself and how it's being perceived in the eyes of customers. And of course, it bodes well for when we launch transactional banking um, at the end of the year.
0: How do you make yourselves more profitable? I ask this question because your return on equity is in the single digits, return on equity traditionally in the banking environment regarded as a good measure of profitability. Your your big rivals are are, are on ROEs between 15 and 20. You're sitting in sort of nine-ish. Yes.
3: Uh, and that's a, a critical point. So one of the things that we've noted in explaining why our ROE is sitting at 9.6% is that because our new channels, being credit direct, which is the ability to get a loan through a contact center, and our digital channels are still very young businesses that are still burning through money and, and, and not yet returning a profit. And so they, those two are drags. On our ROE, but we ex- we fully expect that as these come to profitability um, in the in the next few months, that we will start to see um, a nice improvement in our ROE. Um, and just to kind of explain the the context here, our branch network returns an ROE of 20%. Um, and then, in- but because we are investing in these new businesses, we then do see this drag on our ROE. The other drag on our ROE is because of the capital structure of our balance sheet. Um, we hold a lot of capital. Um, just by virtue of how the bank was capitalised, and once we're able to refinance the bank um, and to have a more normalised capital structure, we will be able to start sharing ROEs so
0: closer to our peers. Basani Maluleke, thank you, Chief Executive at African Bank. Welcome to the Money Show on this Tuesday evening and also welcome this evening to Professor Murray Lebrandt who is the head of the South African Labour Law and Development Research Unit at the School of Economics at the University of Cape Town, after that introduction, our time is up, Prof. Marie Lebrun, and I must <laughs> let you go. Um, uh, why have we been lied to about the size of the middle class? I feel as though somebody has been keeping a secret, but you've uh, researched this in lots of detail, and this whole myth of this rapidly growing middle class, or the core focus of government policy, turns out to be a bit of a myth.
4: Well, it's, I wouldn't say we've been lied to. I think we just have uh, lacked some sort of clear definition of what we mean by the middle class. So people have defined it in, in whatever way they wanted to. Uh, some people saying, well, it's the middle of the income distribution. Well, of course, that's not very useful uh, because that has to then be a fairly sizable chunk of, of people. Um, uh, whereas in, in our work, we're locking into into a definition that says that the middle class is, is, has to be a stable class that can be forward-looking in their economic and social decision-making. So, for example, you can invest, invest in the, the education of your children. You can think about taking a bond on a house, because the classic uh, role of a middle class in development is a type of a stabilizer um a a citizenry that are are able to settle down and get on with life and get on with trying to give their kids, uh, you know, a very good grounding to be productive in the labor market. Uh, And if one adopts such a definition and uh, combines that with with some survey data that, that government has produced that's actually been tracking South Africans, so a longitudinal view on South Africans, um, about 30,000 South Africans since 2008, then it turns out that actually only about 20% of South Africans uh, don't have to look over their shoulders with a a threat of falling back into poverty or vulnerability and so can adopt that forward-looking sense. So our estimate is that a stable middle class in in that sense that's not vulnerable is about 20% of the population.
0: So many people mistake middle income with middle class. Just because you're earning it doesn't mean that you are out of that stage of vulnerability.
4: That's spot on. That's exactly the point, actually, because these data, which uh, they're not tracking the same group of people over time, show that for many South Africans, uh, life is quite precarious. And so if you take a cross-section, say, for example, like we often do in the market research surveys and we identify some LSMs, Uh, that's not necessarily a stable average picture of of what life looks like for that family and how they you know how they can make decisions etc so a shock uh, if if employment is is precarious and vulnerable then that's not a stable stabilizer in your life and and therefore you are are very vulnerable to falling either back below some poverty line or nonetheless to some level of income where you can't you can't be proactive. You know, we find that that South Africans are are very active and proactive in their own in trying to get along and forge a decent life. But it's not always possible. There are many constraints along the way.
0: I mean, it, I suppose intuitively we know it already, but. Just a quarter of South Africans can be considered to be stably middle class or in this elite. The the reality is, and the brutal reality, and it feeds maybe into this discussion around the minimum wage of just twenty rand an hour. But half of all South Africans are beyond vulnerable. They are trapped in poverty, and that is the most devastating aspect of this entire research.
4: Yes, that's true. Um, that's uh, I, again, I I can only concur. Um, and uh, as you say, it feeds directly into this discussion of the middle class, because we need to get on uh, and try and, and and create environments in which uh, proactive citizenry can actually uh, claw their way out of that, that poverty trap, because it really is a trap in many, many senses. Um, and... Uh, and I think it's all hands on deck. It goes very much to the, the president's idea of the need for a national vision. And, uh, you know, and um, if you think about the, yes, youth employment scheme, it's to give youth some opportunities. Uh, but also government needs to orient its its policies around, for example, transport costs are hugely important yeah. in the day to day reality of people or affordable housing. Uh, stable electricity, water supply, you know, these are infrastructure things, you know, we mustn't be too big picture about infrastructure, we must, we must focus on making daily lives of people uh, more stable, and then they will do the rest.
0: For many people listening to us this evening, the sense of hopelessness about the long-term future of South Africa is ever-present, particularly if you're trapped in that debt trap or you're in that poverty trap and you simply can't see your way out. For many people looking at that poverty trap and saying, hold on a second, it doesn't create a sustainable future. Can policy dig us out of this, or do we just need to be creating a more self-sustaining outside of the public sector society?
4: Yeah, it's definitely not just policy you know, uh, the labor market's at center stage of this, and there's no way that um, that, the, that the public sector is going to create the type of dynamic labor market on its own. It's going to create uh, some of the conditions for those sorts of labor markets. So it's, it's definitely uh, all hands on deck, for sure. Um, but I don't want uh, the, the picture to be a static picture. In a sense, I referred to the survey instrument that allowed us to show that life is precarious and vulnerable for many South Africans. But it does also show that uh, so this middle class defined in that way has grown a little bit, not in leaps and bounds. It's slow social progress in a long run sense of the, say, the national plan rather than uh, year by year things. Um, A but a well-functioning labor market, say with a minimum wage, that's really designed to protect the most vulnerable right at the bottom of the labor market with, with an eye over our shoulders on, on no negative um, you know, job losses as well. It's set too low for many South Africans, but nonetheless, the, the mm. idea was a sort of platform, and I think we want to be thinking about creating platforms for people uh, to support them.
0: My thanks to you, Professor Murray Lebron. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Devastating picture of the reality of South Africa. He's the head of the South Africa Labour and Development Research Unit at UCT. That's the first hour of The Money Show, Done and Dusted. Coming up in a couple of minutes' time, Andy Rice with Heroes and Zeros. His hero is just lovely. It's about dignity and the workplace and great ideas and fashion. Andy Rice, fashion? Really? I'm staying tuned for that. Welcome to The Money Show. It's brought to you by the Old Mutual Investment Group, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. This is a Money Show first. I don't think I've ever had a man with a man bun as a guest. And he's a lawyer. Nochal. Is you allowed to be a lawyer with a man bun? I wonder if that is allowed. Anyway, it's very trendy and very fashionable, and runs a legal business that is a business about the law, which is not a law firm. And I'm looking thoroughly looking forward uh, to meeting my guest this evening at uh, uh, at half past seven. Aiton Stern, the director at Legalese, joins us. The science of the personal brand. He represents a lot of people who, in the artists, uh, in the, who are, are more artistically inclined, and are starting businesses, whether they be performers or whether they be um, voiceover artists, those sorts of people. Dr. Martin Davies, MD of Emerging Markets and Africa at Deloitte with our Africa Business Focus, and Andy Rice standing by to take us through uh, this week's Heroes and Zeros. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the future of the South African economy and all sorts of other things in the next hour here on The Money Show. But I see the independent panel of experts looking into what should and should not be zero rated to be given a bit more flexibility to do their work. And that's a good thing because they need to be considering far more options than simply looking at this really small basket of something like twenty it was it twenty-two items that are zero rated from VAT. In addition to their own deliberations, they may also receive and consider submissions on the zero rating of non food items. Now that's really interesting. Um and, and that could be sanitary products, for example, and I don't know there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of pressure on that particular front. Suddenly that scope of what could be zero rated to make a huge difference in the lives of South Africans becomes substantial. Now, that, of course, has a fiscal impact because if you start zero rating too many items that lots of people buy, well, then you need to start upping the VAT rate in order to compensate for that. So we watch the space very, very closely. There are lots of vested interests in place. Also, the deadline for the final report on the panel has been extended to the 31st of July. Um, It was the end of June, I think. So it's good to see they've got a bit more time and the scope has been broadened as well. So that is good news
3: the money show on cake talk your number one news and talk station
0: andy rice the branding and advertising expert on the line to us this evening give us a hero andy everybody needs a hero
5: evening Bruce. um yes uh last week our hero was was a, a new model from the kia car range called the stinger and the point i was trying to make was that it's always encouraging when brands Use marketing to improve their, their reputation, their perception, their ability to, to move up market and make more profits in the process. And I've got another one this week, uh, which uh, was triggered by an advertising insert that fell out of my copy of Business Day last week. And uh, this is a uh, an eight-page insert for a brand of workwear, the kind of clothes that a company would, would buy to, to clothe its workforce protective, safety, warmth, all of those kind of things. The company is called Johnson Workwear, my apologies. And uh, as I said, this was an eight-page insert that was in business day, super confident in terms of of the message they're trying to get across. And the photography and the art direction uh, and the the layout and everything was really the language of the fashion catwalk, not the language of the factory floor. And I thought this was a really great initiative. by choosing business day to carry the insert, they reach the employers who are probably signing off the purchase of the clothes. But they, by using this very fashion orientated style, it makes people proud to wear them as well. And as the as one of the inserts says, um, uh, if you look good, you feel good, and if you feel good, you are productive. So um, I was quite surprised at the scale of, of Johnson Workwear. Their manufacturing capacity is over 30,000 garments a day. So they are not small fry. And I think it's this kind of bold and creative and elegant uh, advertising that's got them to that place in the market.
0: I, mean, I saw the insert that you're referring to, and it was it was a dignified in, insert. I mean, so often people associate the idea of wearing overalls as something that is um, undignified. It is the the, the, wear, the work wear of labour, and um, the last place you would expect to see it is in the hallowed pages of the Business Day. And uh, no, by
5: coincidence, the very same issue of Business Day that the insert was in carried up an advertisement for the Rolls Royce new SUV, the Cullinan. (laughs) And uh, if that's the kind of audience they're trying to reach for Rolls-Royce, then uh, uh, it says that uh, Johnson Workwear also appeals to an aspirational uh, an affluent
0: audience. It's such a clever strategy. It really is. It adds dignity, and it also brings into the boardroom potentially the discussion around workwear at the office. And what I was really most impressed about. I mean, if you said to me Johnson workwear, I would have pictured a blue overall. Um, but exactly. it's uh, it, it's the array of, of 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 garments that they have um, on display that I think blew me away almost as much as the strategy behind it.
5: The, uh, the self-adhesive reflective tape, aren't you, when, when in fact you're looking at garments that would sit very comfortably in upmarket stores and shopping malls.
0: Yeah, no, very clever. So well done. A hero to Johnson workwear. Um, you like car ads and then car ads go bad. It really upsets you. You take it quite personally, Andy. This <laughs> week it yeah. is Mercedes-Benz. Mercedes-Benz. How can mercedes possibly offend you?
5: Well, you know, I I suppose it's my viewing habits that lead me to see a lot of car advertisements. Um, And also, I think they do spend a lot of money, so their frequency uh, on air is quite high. And this is the launch of Mercedes X-Class. It's their first foray into the world of buckies, of pickups. Uh, Probably one of the most hotly contended categories and a very substantial category to boot in the South African motor industry. And a brand like Mercedes going into the, the buggy market ought to be a really significant move. And I'm sure it is in many people's eyes. But what disappointed me was that there was very little attempt to carry the extraordinary brand equity, the reputation that Mercedes has earned over the years, into this new launch. When you extend a brand into a new category, you normally do it because all of that uh, equity comes with you. But here we have a TV commercial, which is clearly shot overseas because it was um, driving on the wrong side of the road, funny number plates, all that kind of thing. So uh, expediency and, and cost savings were obviously at the, uh, behind that decision to take an overseas commercial. And it's got all the usual visual cliches of, of a bucky racing across difficult terrain and outrunning the enemies, the enemies in this case being um, some human, some animal, and some supernatural Uh, But basically, they are the same visual cliches you see with all Bucky advertising. And at the end, there's a little um, line that says first of a new kind as their payoff line. Uh, What kind are they first of? There's absolutely nothing to explain the role of Mercedes in making that move into a new category. And actually, if you've taken out all the branding you could have stuck another Bucky brand in there quite
0: successfully. And that's a fail, that's a lost opportunity, and especially in a country where people put a lot of stead in their buckies and where the Bucky of choice for many, many years has been the Hilux, and, and that's the gold standard. And, of course, Ford has come into the Ranger and many others. If you're going to come into a market that is dominated by solid brands, you've really got to differentiate, not say, look, we also do what everybody else does. You've just got to pay twice as much. Yeah, that's the
5: whole point. I mean, you don't get any change out of 800,000 for this bucky. So that's a, that's a lot of money to pay for, for um, you know, two less doors and a, and a, and a, a bucky at the back. So,
0: <laughs> and um, no back seat. I mean, honestly, what were they thinking?
5: <laughs> but Where's the engineering integrity? Where's the comfort? Where's the prestige? Where's the luxury? None of that is, is, is carried over. And I'm quite sure it's not because they don't want it to be there. They're just not communicating it.
0: Buy our bucky. It's so expensive. You won't want to load anything on the back. How's that for a pale flight?
5: We won't mention
0: that it's actually a Nissan Navara underneath. <gasps> Stop it. Andy Rice, sacrilege, branding and advertising expert, uh, Andy Rice with Heroes and Zeros. This evening's hero, Johnson Workwear. And at the opposite end of the uh, of uh, of the market, the, the Mercedes-Benz, the X-Class Bucky, a lost opportunity as far as Andy Rice is concerned in terms of positioning something that should be absolutely premium in a market that is already dominated by some uh, some very big players and um, he says that uh, Mercedes has missed the opportunity to get a unique message. The
3: Money Show. The Africa Business Report.
0: Welcome to the Africa Business Report. Dr. Martin Davies, Managing Director of Emerging Markets and Africa at Deloitte. So, throat cleared. Everything's good. Dr. Martin Davies, how is our continent this week? Is it better off than it was last
6: yeah, hi, good evening, Bruce. Uh, we're doing okay. I think we're ticking along. I'm off to uh, Nigeria soon. I think they're still a bit of stuck in a bit of a funk, but uh, East Africa is doing pretty well. South Africa, Nigeria, the bookends as I always call them of sub-Saharan Africa, we're ready to be underperforming. We need to need to get into gear.
0: Uh, we are underperforming, and certainly Nigeria for a long time has underperformed at seventy-five dollars a barrel. However, for oil, its key export commodity. Um, Nigeria's got to be looking up, surely.
6: Look, it's given some – compared to last year, Bruce, I think sort of January this year, there's some definite green shoots in the Nigerian sort of economy because of the uplift in oil. It's the only show in town, really, I think. Um, however I'm pretty bearish on oil I think there's you know we used to talk about Saudi Arabia perhaps being the swing producer these days it's more uh, it's a fracker in North Dakota effectively and I think that'll keep oil subdued which is probably sort of a macro suppressant of growth of West Africa think Angola Nigeria but 75 bucks a barrel is much better than what it was in recent years at least particularly post July 2014 and and that's helping Nigeria somewhat just not so much a tailwind but bit of a breeze, perhaps a tail breeze. But, of course, political risk coming, not well, risk is the wrong word, but uncertainty once again uh, leading up to elections come Nigeria.
0: I mean, that political uncertainty is something that has beset South Africa increasingly in recent years, and um, we're seeing something of a turnaround in sentiment in South Africa, yet to translate overtly into sustainable growth. But at least we seem to have turned that political corner, that very important mm-hmm. political corner.
6: Yeah, we always often talk about this, Bruce, and we certainly have a bit of a tailwind there as well. I think, you know, what is, it's remarkable, I think, what we're doing. In terms of trying to, to restructure, uh, structure reform with effectively governance reform. And President Gordon has clearly been doing a fantastic job in recent weeks, even recent months, in trying to, to fix our state-owned economy. And that's where the, the fundamental challenges lie. Uh, as you know, S&P gave a rating on us last week. And, um, I was kind of staggered to learn that 70% or 70% now of, um, uh, debt to GDP or 70% of debt to GDP. Uh, comes from public sector, which would be national, municipal, and SOEs. Uh, so 70% if you're Southern European, that looks pretty good. But from an emerging market perspective, a frontier market, what is sort of the maximum ceiling of debt? Anything above 50, arguably, you're in a red zone. Anything above 60, and you're calling the IMF. So yeah, we're, we're tenuous, and I think we, need, we have a, a clearly bloated state, bloated state enterprises, and we need to, to slim those down and quickly, at the very least, to, to sort of, you know, to, to to fix budget reform effectively and also to, to appease the rating agency.
0: We've, we've been able to fudge it for a long time, but now with uh, with government debt in excess of 50% of GDP, we've got a, a problem now in terms of those state-owned enterprises which are sitting on bloated balance sheets. They've been left up to their own devices. Boards have been mismanaged. Um, we have seen deliberate mm-hmm. corruption in many of these cases. And without proper oversight, we've actually created a rod for our own back.
6: You, you know, unfortunately, uh, these conversations, typically in South Africa, maybe in many places, become very ideological. You know, should the state own, should not own. And all, all we are asking for is the citizens of our country is to have you know, well-managed enterprises, which are, which are corruption-free, and, uh, and truly perform the developmental sort of role that they intended to have. And that's what we all want um i think to get back to that state would be not short term but medium term and uh, i'm afraid every day almost we hear more and more bad news I'm not quite sure how deep that hold is in many cases um i think there's more bad news to come unfortunately and uh
0: don't shoot the messenger. Yeah, I mean, look, we are we are where we are as a country, but what we are seeing is this strategy to implement this idea of inclusive social economic transformation, and it's lots of big words which are, uh, when you group them together in a single sentence, sound very impressive, inclusive social economic transformation. But without that, we are on a hiding to nothing.
6: Uh, Undoubtedly, Bruce, I mean, you put the words in my mouth and, uh, you know, I think it's we, we've, the S&P said, didn't say it in many words, but we've effectively hit the ceiling of a middle-income trap uh, in South Africa. And one of the key sort of flags, red flags, which S&P raised was this issue of lack of per capita income growth, where the second worst, Qatar, is only worse than us, of a basket of 20 emerging economies that they evaluated. So on a per capita basis... You know, and you mentioned it earlier in the show about the erosion uh, or perhaps even overestimation of middle class and middle class spending in our country. So, you know, we have hit that middle income trap, if you will, per capita income trap. And, you know, we, we, we often talk about inclusive growth. As an aside, we at Deloitte launched this with gearing for growth series and, and saying practically what do we have to do to, to grow the economy? Um, let's look at all the best solutions we can uh, let's you know get uh we often we can't see the forest i think the trees in in you know, our own sort of situations here let's take the best case globally and uh, and how do we practically grow the economy we all believe we should be getting five six percent no one says that's incorrect but seemingly three percent is is our speed limit and um we're trying to figure out what is it beyond sort of the global macro maybe commodity prices etc which can give us this five-six percent growth target, which, which which we really need to to um, to have a noticeable impact on poverty alleviation and alleviation in our country.
0: So, and, but, but, and what does so the what does the brains trusted Deloitte uh, come up with?
6: Well, you know, we've had you know we earlier this Q1 this year we had a session looking at how the countries recover from crisis, looking at sort of East European countries, Asian countries, sort of post-financial crises and shocks. I looked at countries like Malaysia, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, you know, Indonesia, these countries, and what worked, what didn't work. We're having a session next week looking at sort of what I call the elusive trinity, and I, I think this is of growth, and it's, it's industrialization, it's, it's productivity and employment. I think it's quite easy to get two but not three, and hence the elusive trinity. So, so how do we industrialize, and also inclusive growth. There's no sector, Bruce. I think you spoke about this before a long while ago. There's no sector that embeds wealth and diffuses wealth into a society like manufacturing, full-time employment, people are getting 12, maybe 13 paychecks a year. And that creates a, a at the very least, an aspirin middle-class society. Unfortunately, we've hollowed out in manufacturing. Um, and we need to recapture that. Our challenge is not entirely unique, but almost. We need to not much industrialize, but re-industrialize. But the competition is far greater We're in, a, in a period of, you know, an era of globalization. 20 years ago, the China price didn't really exist. Now it does. And uh, I'm afraid uh, the emerging world, my macro observation is the emerging world is diverging. It's not converging. You're having the high-growth economies, typically Asian and a few others, and you have the rest which are diverging. I think South Africa at this inflection point. We need to get this high growth. To join that development club, otherwise I'm afraid we're trading water.
0: Now, it comes down to a question of productivity and our ability to produce the goods and services that are produced elsewhere at a fraction of what we are prepared <laughs> to deliver these products and services at.
6: Uh, certainly, I was having meeting us today with, with a, an executive of a very sizable foreign manufacturing company here in South Africa. And we often too simplistically look at costs and cost of labor and the like, but uh, he was saying the costs on the surface are very, very comparable, but productivity levels are significantly less than factories that operate in other parts of the world. And we had a long conversation around how do we drive productivity? and i 'm afraid at times a productivity conversation, which is all important, sustainability is gains in productivity uh, competitiveness is, is cumulative gains in productivity and i 'm afraid these conversations of productivity conversation, is something I think which is which is really required. it talks to skill set It talks to human resources and how we channel those in very very effective uh, in very effective manners.
0: How many productivity conversations you can you have before they become? Unproductive. I wonder, Dr. Martin Davies. Thank you, Managing <laughs> Director of Emerging Markets at Africa for Africa at Deloitte. Uh, his insights this evening on the opportunities set for South Africa as we are you know, the second biggest economy on this continent after Nigeria, which has had its own problems, and South Africa, of course, with its own with its own great difficulties, most of them self-inflicted and political by nature. But if we can get a handle on our ideology and the way in which we operate our economy, the way in which we operate our public enterprises, our state-owned companies. We make them more competitive. We uh, f- oblige people to work more effectively for the wages that they earn and have fewer people working more effectively. Tragically, that could be one of the compromises that has to be reached as part of um, the the rejigging and the re-engineering of South Africa's civil service which President Sir Ramaphosa has told will be done by 2019 and I think that will be a critical election um, issue for the ANC as it goes into those elections in 2019. Productivity is the the key word. And if we can't compete, well, then we are on a hiding to nothing, sadly.
3: The Money Show. The Science of...
0: The science of this evening, it's the science of the personal brand. So many of you are going into business for yourselves. So many of you are deciding to opt out of the rat race as you see it and go and start your own companies. And in order to do so, you need legal advice. And the last thing you want to pay for vast amounts of money for when you're starting out is the admin stuff, all of the legal advice. And so you might wing it and you might start out and you might go, "Yeah, well, we'll, we'll the shareholders' agreements, we'll, we'll postpone those for a bit. And we, we get on. let going to be fine it's going to be fine and you know once we've got some cash flow we'll then we'll, we'll get a lawyer involved and we'll set up the shelter and it's like as Pablo tells us so often um, you are costing yourself a lot of money in the long term so as we look at uh, at creating your personal brand or your personal business if you like um, more and more as you get out of corporate maybe you're tired of corporate maybe you just want to start out you want to do something different Aiton Stern is director at LegalEase and you're the first person on the money show that I've ever seen with a man bun. So that is your uh, your, your first credit. And that's not really loyally. It's not a- that
7: loyally. Well, you'd be surprised. I mean, lawyers are you know, oh, people too yeah, right. <laughs> are people too I know it's hard to believe um but you're the first interview I've ever seen with uh, blue and yellow socks
0: well thank you yes <laughs> um, I, I'm very serious about my socks um but when you when you you worked in the corporate sector you worked as a lawyer who charges Like vodacom per second billing sort of approach to uh, but at a much higher rate yeah. um you've done all of that
7: yeah I suppose legalese was uh, our company was built on on the idea of understanding how lawyers worked and then understanding how creative and entrepreneurs worked and then kind of marrying the two together taking the best of both
0: but you're a law firm staffed by lawyers that's not a law firm
7: yeah it's you'd be surprised it's actually quite becoming quite a popular trend Um, and the the idea of the traditional law firm is breaking down so there's still plenty of lawyers that are working traditional firms and they take up most of the market but there's a lot of kind of different takes on legal services now and there's uh, companies that are setting up legal tech businesses and a couple of legal consultancies and a few people trying to just do it differently uh, realized that something wasn't working that perfectly about the legal industry, so everyone's having a different take on it.
0: What's not working about the legal industry? What 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 gap did you see that you could exploit differently?
7: Um, I suppose a number of them. For one, the obvious one which you've mentioned, uh, the pricing, There is uh, the, it's too expensive. And uh, lawyers, yeah, lawyers are too expensive and it's unaffordable for a lot of people. So even if the service is worth it, it doesn't actually matter because people can't just can't afford it. Um, that was the one. I suppose the other one is also in the way that legal advice is given. You know that classic joke they say people say you want the the one handed lawyer, so you can't have the lawyer go on the one hand, but also on the other hand.
0: <laughs> and I I used to think the law was quite a simple thing, but oh, it's as not it, simple. <laughs> it, uh, they, uh, you know, you can be right and wrong, and your opponent can be completely wrong yeah. yet have a right.
7: Yeah. So I mean, interesting. What we do, we try not focus our Take is really, really different on it. So we try not focus on Opponents and law doesn't actually have to be this confrontational uh, dispute sort of thing. Within the law, there is plenty going on that isn't about two people fighting. You know, so we look at SMEs and we try to figure, well, what can we do to help you? You create your business to make your business succeed, not what can we do to help you fight with people. Mm-hmm. And we work in that space, so we, you know, I get to go to work and not fight, which is uh, a real, real pleasure. But you
0: spend your life training for the fight.
7: Um, I didn't. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I did a bit of court work, but I never enjoyed the fight. I like mm. building. I'm big into constructive stuff. I like to help people's idea come to life. And
0: I, 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 This is plagiarism. I, I'm just sure. stating it up front. I nicked it off your website. Th- but traditionally, lawyers fine. are called to fix problems. Legalese looks at law differently, utilizing modern technology and innovative thinking to tailor-make legal solutions that suit your business and prevent problems occurring in the first place. There we go. Now, I mean, that's all well and good. We've provided, both parties who are dealing with the with the document that you've created see it the same way. Yeah, because I, as we know, nothing in the law is that simple.
7: For sure, I suppose it's it's no different to the insurance companies. You know, at some point they realised, wait a second, if we just keep people healthy, then uh, they, we won't have to pay out as much. So they started putting money and effort into people and keeping he- uh, staying healthy. Look, we from time to time uh, our clients do land up in disputes, and we help them to assist it. Uh, uh, to fix it, we've just launched um, a mediation department uh, because I feel that for SMEs, mediation is a much more um, manageable and affordable way to solve disputes. So what we'll do is we'll figure out if you land up in a dispute, we'll look at it and see, cool, how do we get you out of this? How do we fix this? Not how do we use as many hours as possible to hold you up in court and drain your bank accounts. Um, um, uh,
0: you, say, you say it as fact, and I mean, I would like to believe that lawyers aren't there deliberately to p- price gouge. Yeah, no, they're definitely. Uh, they may not be as circumspect as we would like them to be. Yeah. Um, when it comes to measuring time,
7: I guess I'm, I'm definitely exaggerating. And lawyers mm. do a fantastic job, and not <laughs> not. not
0: <laughs> you, you're hearing the writs pinging into your phone as we speak. Yes. <laughs>
7: um, no, lawyers do a fantastic job, and and lawyers are there to to help clients, and that predominantly is what they do. I'm a lawyer, and I'm a big fan of lawyers, but there is something in the industry and in the culture of it that a lot of the work that certainly i used to do at a corporate firm um or what i see colleagues do is not always like you might do the work knowing that you're going that the that the client might not have a valuable solution so i suppose the one difference for us and it's it's not just us lots of lawyers are good people is we look at cool where's the value like if you're paying me money which is hard-earned money for you, I want to know what value are you going to get
0: out of this. And, and sometimes the best advice is to not fight. 100%. Um, that's very and, often. And, and so often you you get the impression that people don't get that advice or if they get the advice, they choose to ignore it.
7: Yeah. So, I mean, for us, it's, it's more about looking at solutions. So if you've got a business, you mentioned the shareholders example. Cool. You want to start a business. What solutions can we put together for you in order to uh, help your business succeed? Um, when we started to realize people landed up in disputes, we needed to figure out a solution. So we developed this mediation part of the business. And the whole of Legalese has just been built on looking on, at different solutions for creatives, entrepreneurs, and uh, startups. And that's been, for me, the big difference between our approach and a traditional law firm. Um, is that it's solution based?
0: And, and what I what I found interesting is just looking at your website that that you got very your, your charges are clearer than a cell phone account. Your charges are clearer yeah. <laughs> um, than, than, than a bank charge statement. Yeah. Uh, for example, you make it very clear. Um, come and chat to us. We can have our time for nothing for a bit. Yeah. Uh, and then once we put together the solution, here's a fixed price yeah. for that solution. It's,
7: it seems it seems very straightforward. Um, But when – so when I started LegalEase was now three and a half years ago, um, I kind of looked around the world what people were doing. And in the UK and America, there were these set fees. And I looked around South Africa and we couldn't find it. So I think we pretty much were – it was like this small idea at the beginning that turned into quite a big thing of just saying to people this is what we're going to charge. And putting that on the website as a price list and it served us very, very well and it was kind of one of these things that – I didn't realize at the time how valuable that would be. And now I see a lot of law firms do it, which is really, really fantastic. Uh,
0: whether it takes you five minutes to find the solution because you may have dealt with a similar case yesterday and you might just have the cut and paste that you can you can pull up. I'm sure you would never do that. Uh, whether <laughs> it takes you five hours of research because it, there's a particular unique challenge yeah. here. Yeah. Um, that's the risk you take. Then.
7: Well, it's not the risk. That's where the magic really happens. So, you know, what we try to do is how do we productize things? We look at the same thing that all kind of tech – like – we we are for, by tech, for tech. So we look at all the sorts of ways that tech companies uh, or methods they use to get smart. And if you've done something a number of times and you can figure out a better way, like a quicker way to do it, and you develop a product around that, then you're really, really winning and you can pass that on to the clients, bring the, the price down. That creates, you know, like ge- uh, that generates a lot of revenue and then you can move on to the next product. So, you know, and that's, our, our, our focus has always re- really been kind of, how do we build products for for clients that are in the legal uh, sphere? Are,
0: are you using artificial intelligence? Are you using the sort of learning that is capable, or is it not yet evolved to a point where the South Africa's legal system can be interpreted yeah. uh, by a computer?
7: Well, we aren't. You know, we, we kind of keep to the the like our model is is less around legal tech, although legal tech is brilliant. I uh, we we don't use it as much. Our model is how do you like offer an affordable but still professional legal service. Um, but there are some really interesting companies doing work in legal tech um, and trying to figure out how you can use uh, uh, AI to to make legal services faster. I haven't seen anything that works brilliantly, but uh, there are solutions, and I think those solutions are going to come in the form of software that lawyers can use. Not really software that's going to replace lawyers. So the same way you might use zero or or fresh books, or something for your accounting there's soon going to be legal software for that so that I'm very excited for
0: Aiton Stern is my guest this evening director at Legalese are you starting up something are you having a fight with a partner are you looking for some guidance as to how you can use the advice of a lawyer without getting caught up in the Legalese and what rhymes with Legalese but fees um, how do you avoid that? Can is it possible to dodge the fees bullet and still get some decent advice we're going to be talking about personal branding and the sort of work that Aiton does in terms of helping people start up their businesses, especially when you go out on your own for the first time. How do you position yourself in a competitive space where you can bet your bottom dollar others have spotted the opportunity that you have spotted? How do you legal proof yourself in that environment? Aiton Stern, the director at LegalEase, in a moment.
6: Hero of the month.
3: Visit leadersave.co.za and nominate your hero
7: today. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial...
0: How do you um, get the, the sort of legal guidance that you might need when it comes to setting up that business? Eton Stern does this for a living. He's directed Legalese. Uh, it's run by lawyers. It's not a law firm. It's not a law firm because lawyers have to operate by lots of rules and regulations. Yeah. I so you're a consultancy rather than a law law firm. We
7: call it a creative legal agency. We have a law firm that's registered. We uh, and we So it's
0: like KPMG in accounting. It's like a, a yeah. cre- creative accounting firm. I'm joking. That's very unkind. <laughs>
7: <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, you'll find a lot of different business. I mean, to, to some extent, it doesn't operate that differently to an in-house law firm at a company. Um, if you want to be a registered law firm, there's just five different things that you – uh, can't do, and we don't do any of them. So, what are well, the things are,
0: you can't do? Steal your client's money. No,
7: you never allowed to steal <laughs> your client's money. Um, you can't do wills. You can't do conveyancing of houses.
0: Oh, boring stuff. Totally. Yeah, it, it's, it's the it's good I mean, bread and butter money. It's great bread and, bread and butter money, um, which covers the rentals and all that sort of stuff, and everything else is the cream on top, I suppose. Yeah, but I mean, it is soul destroying.
7: Um, for some people, it's not. For me, it just wasn't where I saw my life. I was more. I was a techie, as a musician, and I wanted to. Get, spend my days dealing with techies and musicians and, but I just knew I understood commercial law.
0: Uh, okay, so you've got you've got, a, you've got this legal framework, and particularly let's let's pick a profession. Musicians sure. are a great profession. Okay, um, yeah. the world for for musicians is changing dramatically. Beforehand, you would go, you get a recording contract with a radio with a record label, yeah. and, and then they you go and you put down some tracks on a record, yeah. and then they would sell the records and they would keep ninety five percent of the money and give you some of it. Yeah, and then you get radio airtime and you get royalties, and everybody understood the rules of the game. Mm. And, and then came the internet, and all hell broke loose for musicians.
7: And it's currently still breaking loose. Well, it didn't break loose for musicians as much. It broke loose for the record companies who suddenly just lost their business model because suddenly musicians could go straight to market. And so when we work with musicians, we try to figure out, well, you know, how do you go straight to market? And if you're going to start creating relationships with your business, your brand, what are those relationships and how do you structure them correctly? You know, and on your question that you asked a minute ago, the thing that you mention, mentioned about personal brands and starting it off... How do you start off a business? It never really gets much more complex than that. What do you do? What are the relationships that you you are setting up around you, whether that's with suppliers, clients, employees, the state, uh, the law? And how do you manage those relationships? And that's, you know, if you really break down commercial law to its finest, you know, to its inner core, that's pretty much what it is.
0: So in the case of a musician who's got a band around them, they're five okay. members of the band, and we know that bands, by their nature, five artistic people, with five different interpretations of what they're going to be yeah. sounding like five years from now. Um, these things, more often than not, can end quite badly. Totally,
7: and it's a, take the example of the band. If you don't work out your relationship with the band, fantastic example UB40. There are currently, I believe, two UB40s touring around the world right now. There were bands split up at some point, and at, and both there was a disagreement
0: on who owned the band and they're going hell for leather at each other saying you can't be genuine because you don't have this and you can't be genuine because you don't have that um, and, and one of them is genuine. Though. One of them is genuine. <laughs> um, there is, um, uh, what was the beer? Budvar? Budweiser yeah. by Budvar, for example. The the family left the Czech Republic, went to America and started Bird, yeah. um, which is now owned by Anheuser-Busch. And there's been big fights between the original Budweiser, which you can drink, and then the stuff they make in America out of rice. Um, and <laughs> uh, and um, you know, those sorts of sort of trademark battles are more complex. Possibly than we think.
7: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the trademarks is an interesting thing. You know, in today's world, I suppose the, the thing for me is, is it's less about the brands, and for me, it's like more about the ideas and how do you construct an idea and make sure you get that to market and big enough and build that up securely enough without someone copying
0: it. So let's assume four guys come to you. The names are John, Paul, Ringo, Ringo, and and the other guy, the other guy George. <laughs> um, and, and they come and say, look, we're starting this band. We're going to go play in Hamburg for a while. And we're going to get our 10,000 hours of expertise. And then we're going to take the world by storm, and everyone's going to love us. Yeah. Um,
7: it's a great idea. I'm in.
0: Okay, you're in. Yeah. Excellent. Because a lot of people don't believe it will ever work. <laughs> uh, and and they it's all fine. They write songs. Some guys write the songs. Some guys play the songs. How would you structure this? Uh, they want to call themselves the Beatles, apparently. How how would you recommend to four guys like that who've each got very specific skill sets as to how they divvy up the business, how yeah. they protect themselves, and. How the royalties get paid in perpetuity? Because if they do get big, mm. um, people are still going to be playing their songs 50 years after yeah. they, they stop playing.
7: So I think for the one and the overall thing, and it's never a nice answer, is there is no general answer in it. it the answer has got to fit the four guys specifically in the room. Um, so that's as an overall. So what suits one band won't suit another. Um, but And then my cert, certain view on bands, which, I mean, because we deal with this often with bands, is that – I think if you start to split it too much into pieces and start to get too connected to who's doing what in the band, you're not looking to build a sustainable future for the band.
0: There's no, You don't have a collegial relationship, a group think sort of thing.
7: Totally, and someone who, you know, uh, I'm a drummer personally. We never get as much respect as I think we should, but, you know, (laughs) um, a drummer might be seen, cool, you don't write the music, you should be taking less, but the reality is that drummer might be um, helping in production or, or, you know, Looking after the kids when everyone's at practice. Um, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> the, the, you know, everyone we, plays a part in We just bands.
0: learned a lot about your life, but yes. <laughs>
7: um, everyone, plays, uh, everyone plays a part in it. And so I personally think with bands, you've got to focus on the whole. And with business, with business in general, you've got to focus on the whole instead of if you're going into a business thinking about, well, how do I keep as much of this as possible and how do I get more than the other guys? I personally don't think it's a good way to go in. Of course, you know, we could do it different. Bands do do it differently. Mm-hmm. If you write in the songs, you are putting in a lot more work than the others. And so you could maybe structure that differently.
0: And, and in the world, the way the world is moving, I mean, we talk about creativity and artistry. A lot of people are, are getting good technology skills. Yeah. They're getting great coding skills. Exactly. And they are, I mean, fintech is huge. And people are working within the, the banking environment and going, there's a gap. Now, I could give my idea to the bank. Or I could leave and take this idea and develop it and sell it into the banking industry. Exactly. And that requires a very particular particular sort of thinking around yeah. protecting yourself legally
7: totally i think so the banking industry is super super industry uh, interesting because what your example that you're setting up uh, that you just set up now it's the that happens a lot and the banks need to uh, generate new ideas and need to innovate but banks by their nature because they are so big and so institutionalized they move slower so you do get a lot of people that that figure out an idea leave and try and develop them and what the banks are now doing is they're investing in these ideas, and they've said there's a couple of the banks of incubators where they're trying to essentially invest to, to, well, for one, to figure out new ideas around banking; second of all, to get their first crack of investment at it. And um, you know, I think the banking sector is watching this innovation very, very carefully, and in South Africa specifically. That sector is huge.
0: This concept of innovation and the concept of protecting innovation Mm. um, and who owns what in Mm. that relationship. The Vodacom case is such a – the please call me um, dispute is such an important one. It still hasn't been settled. The young Mm. guy who came up with the idea – he didn't develop the idea but came up with the idea. And, um, you know, Alan Craig is reputative, said, sure, we'll give you some money for it. And then, you know, 15 years later, um, there's still a whole lot of argy-bargy going on because they just didn't agree – Totally. In writing on the t In writing.
7: Teeth. The whole matter could have been so, so quick. You know, a lot of people think that's an intellectual property matter, um, but it's not. It's a contractual one. If it had just been down on paper, an email or anything, I think it could have been a lot simpler. And that lesson we should all learn. If you have something valuable, an idea, don't share it until you are secure with the people that you're sharing it to. And you can do that through contract or you can do that through relationships of trust. Of course, the best way to secure trust is a contract. Um but you know and that's that's definitely a message that we that we that entrepreneurs that need to learn
0: the, the, the sanctity of contract, how mm. strong is that? I mean, if something is written down in black and white yet as we know, lawyers go, well on the uh, mm, well yeah. you know it could be read two ways. That's a lousy contract to my mind.
7: So, yeah I suppose any contract that can be read two ways is a lousy one but again I mean we that's looking at the real end of the example for the most part most people are good people and don't want to mess each other uh, mess each other over so most contracts are not landing up in court once in m- once in a while you have a, a math that lands up in court but if you've got something clear down on paper um the cha- the chances of it landing up in court are slim if it is a deal that is worth millions of uh, of rand then you need to put more effort into it and make sure you have a very very tight contract but if you're a small business you're doing work with a supplier that's bit, and that's an important work for you it's going to be generating your monthly income but it's worth 10 15 20000 rand to a month you just need something very solid but you don't need you a want this page.
0: i will deliver that and you will pay me this much for the service and
7: if you cancel this is what happens and i own the intellectual property and if we land up in a dispute, we'll settle it, you know, in mediation.
0: Mediation versus arbitration versus court. What's the difference between mediation and arbitration?
7: Arbitration is like a is like a, a, a sort of court it's court light. It's court. It's court light. <laughs> and you agree that the finding will be binding. Mm. Uh, mediation is super interesting. What it basically is is the two people agree to sit around the table with a trained mediator and work the issue out. Um, uh, you kind of the mediator will not judge but he'll try he or she will try find solutions and for me one of the big solutions big motivations in not landing up in court is court is very 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 expensive yeah. so you know when you're sitting there and it's costing you money to mediate and you've got to find a way out of this dispute uh, we see that people do want to sort their differences out,
0: and, 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 but you've got to have willing partners that's to the, come to come to the table.
7: That's always that is the big catch in the whole thing. You've got to have willing partners. You know, when when I was involved in a corporate law firm, you hear people uh, say a lot. You know, it's not about the money; it's about the principle. Mm-hmm. It's always about the principle until you until,
0: realize, it, costs until it costs lots of money. Until it costs lots of money. What an interesting business, cool. Ed, thank Stern. You. Thank you. Directed legally is the law firm. That's not a law firm; it's a legal consultancy looking at a. Applying the law more creatively. Um, It's not accounting creative. It's just uh, taking the law and utilizing it in the most pragmatic way possible. Maybe that's the best way of describing it. Directed legalese, Aiton Stern.
7: The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things.
0: Well, that was interesting. Thank you for listening to The Money Show this evening. Back again tomorrow. Lots of great stories to share with you tomorrow. And until then, have a very good evening. Have a very safe uh, day tomorrow. And I look forward to joining you again from 6. Till then, bye-bye.